Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 16th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll discuss Colin Kaepernick's collusion claim against the NFL and whether it has any chance to succeed. We'll also talk to Evan Drellick, the former Astros beat writer for the Houston Chronicle, about one of the biggest anomalies in the history of baseball, the team's 5'6", or maybe 5'5", superstar Jose Altuve, And Caitlin Murray, who writes about soccer for the New York Times and other outlets, will join us for a conversation about whether the Portland Thorns, who won the National Women's Soccer League Championship over the weekend, are a model for success in women's sports or a non-replicable outlier. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Replicable outlier. Um, I like that. I like that. If you haven't listened to um, our bonus episode from last week, um, we did one on the U.S. men's national soccer team's disastrous loss to Trinidad, which knocked them out of the World Cup. You can find that extra episode wherever you usually find this podcast. And if you didn't read it, Stefan convened a roundtable on that failure, which we published on Slate last week. If you're looking for a 5,000-word discussion on the future of the men's national team program. This isn't the piece for you. But if you're looking for a 4,000-word discussion mm-hmm. of the future of the men's program, then you should probably check it out. Stefan is nodding. I he endorse agrees. it. I, I think it could have been 5,000. <laughs> if you want the 5,000-word, we can do that one next week. <laughs> on Sunday, a day in which Aaron Rodgers and Jameis Winston went down with injuries, and Brian Hoyer got benched by the 49ers, who gave the ball to the immortal C.J. Bethard, Colin Kaepernick filed a grievance under the NFL's collective bargaining agreement, alleging that the league's 32 teams have colluded to keep him off the field due to the protest movement he instigated in 2016. Kaepernick's lawyer, Mark Garagos, who has represented Michael Jackson, Scott Peterson, and Chris Brown, among others, an all-star roster, a real Pro Bowl roster, if I've ever heard one, um, he said in a statement that, and I quote, 
If the NFL, as well as all professional sports leagues, is to remain a meritocracy, then principled and peaceful political protests, which the owners themselves made great theater imitating weeks ago, should not be punished and athletes should not be denied employment based on partisan political provocation by the executive branch of our government. Such a precedent threatens all patriotic Americans and harkens back to our darkest days as a nation. Protecting all athletes from such collusive conduct is what compelled Mr. Kaepernick to file his grievance. Colin Kaepernick's goal has always been and remains to simply be treated fairly by the league he performed at the highest level for and to return to the football playing field. As we have discussed before, Stefan, and as Michael McCann of Sports Illustrated has laid out in a very comprehensive piece, to win this grievance, Kaepernick is going to have to prove either the teams cooperated with each other to keep him out of the league or that a team or teams cooperated with the NFL itself to keep him out of the league. Um, But before we get to the mechanics here, let's talk about why he's doing this, what this grievance symbolizes. What are your thoughts on that? Well, either you believe that they have something here, that they have evidence of collusion. And collusion doesn't have to be, to be very, very clear, and I know you just said it, but it's worth repeating. It does not have to be league-wide. It does not have to involve Roger Goodell and the highest levels of the National Football League's bureaucracy. It can be one owner and another, one GM and another, one scout and another. It's not clear, you know, it would depend on 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 how a, a, an arbitrator interprets that evidence, but it doesn't have to be quite as wide ranging as everyone might suspect. Um, it doesn't have to be like Jerry Jones to all NFL owners, subject line, black ball Kaepernick. Right. It doesn't even have to be what Major League Baseball was found guilty of doing in the 1980s um, when it colluded to not sign free agents. And in that case, there was direct evidence. There were memos where teams were were uh, were ordered not to sign, basically, and they agreed on what players to offer contracts to or not offer contracts to, and teams would share information about what they planned or didn't plan to offer to particular players. And the players won those cases. There were multiple cases, three cases, actually, um, where collusion was proof. Leagues have gotten smarter since then. You're making me look bad. I said, before we get to the mechanics here, let's talk about what the grievance symbolizes. You're not following. You're not colluding with me on how this segment should go. But keep going. Okay. You're on a roll. No, no, no. That's okay. You're on a roll. That's okay. Either you believe that they have something here. Go back to where I started. Um... Or you believe that he's doing this to get attention. And given that Colin Kaepernick has done absolutely nothing to draw attention to himself in recent months, he has been completely silent. I find it extremely difficult to believe that this is some egomaniacal publicity play. Um, There's a third option though, right? The third option. So the, the two options you laid out are either he has the evidence or he's doing this to get publicity. Mm-hmm. The third option is... He thinks that the league is colluding against him. He thinks the owners are colluding against him. He thinks that they're, um, you know, following Donald Trump's lead. And if they followed Donald Trump's lead, that wouldn't be collusion, according to the collective bargaining agreement. But he basically has no other option. And this is the only (laughs) venue that he has based on the collective bargaining agreement to try to bring some sort of grievance. It's just, I don't know if like a Hail Mary is the right term for it, but he's just like taking a shot. He's taking a shot. And, th- and then to me, the question is, to what end? Um, he's already alienated or or been ostracized from the NFL. Um, and if, the and odds if, of him 
getting a job organically at this point are clearly close to zero. Brandon Whedon is is on an NFL roster. Right. Guys are getting signed left and right. Um, if it were about that, you know, he'd have a job by now. We have been through this. Mike Freeman posted a stat on Twitter. Uh, 144 quarterbacks have thrown 200 plus passes in the year that they turned 29. 143 were on NFL rosters when they turned 30. The only one is Kaepernick that was not. This is not at this point about his ability. It's not about whether he should have been allowed to compete for a backup job or brought into camp as a camp arm. It's obviously about something else. So if you're from Kaepernick's perspective, if, if he believes that his career is already torched, then why would he be doing this? One, yeah, maybe to get a shot at getting back in the league. Two, to get compensation from the league for um, being colluded against and prevented from from employment. And that's all he can get, right, is that if an arbitrator finds that the league has colluded against him, he gets compensatory and also punitive, punitive. damages, right? But it, it's not like the arbitrator can say, and the Titans, you have to sign him. Right. Like no, nobody would still sign him or would at least yeah. be compelled to sign him. That'd be kind of funny, though, if the arbitrator <laughs> said, you know what, Jaguars, Blake Borders really sucks. He was on my fantasy team. Can you please sign? You're ordered to sign Colin Kaepernick. Um, there might be something even bigger going on, though. And Mike Florio talked about this um, on Monday morning on Pro Football Talk, that he reported that this might be part of an effort by Colin Kaepernick to get the existing collective bargaining agreement uh, terminated early. And if that were the case, then there's a – where were we? Third, fourth possibility that this is about – making some sacrifice for the greater good of his now former colleagues. And that would be kind of a Kurt Flood, Andy Messersmith type move that you're risking whatever might be left of your career to gain labor marketplace advances, maybe for yourself, but more broadly for all of your coworkers. So what happens in this arbitration hearing? Um, it is – a private hearing, and this was, I think, the most useful part of McCann's FAQ. For me, at least, I'm just going to read it in full. The hearing for Kaepernick's grievance will be a private arbitration hearing, not a public trial. Although the federal rules of evidence will apply, NFL arbitration does not involve nearly the same degree of pretrial discovery as found in a trial. No subpoenas or warrants will be available in such a forum, and witnesses cannot be compelled to testify upon threat of being jailed. These dynamics could limit the ability of Kaepernick to force the NFL to answer his claims or theories. And that was one question that I think um, a lot of folks had is maybe this is a way to just get discovery, to like get those emails, to get um, that that evidence. And it doesn't seem like this is actually a venue where you can make that happen, which again suggests that if they if they don't have the evidence, nobody in the NFL is going to give it to them voluntarily. Um, it makes it seem to me like a little bit more of a long shot. I guess like theory number five or 18 at this point in our conversation is the NFL fucks this stuff up like Repeatedly, every single time. Every single time. So maybe there's just the assumption that they'll fuck it up again, or just at least that it seems like a reasonable bet. Right. And I think what you, you need to take a broader look at how the NFL functions and how player relations function. Colin Kaepernick isn't out there alone. He has agents. 
he is represented by people who are lawyers usually and who have extensive communication with other agents, with teams, with general managers, That's a good point. with player personnel directors, not necessarily with owners, but with the people that are making labor decisions in the NFL. Um, it is like any community, a very chatty and gossipy and information-driven job. Um, we don't know what kinds of emails Kaepernick's agent was receiving from teams. Those emails could be could be incriminating. It's a good point. And obviously, the general managers um, from different teams, they talk to each other as a in the course of doing their jobs. It's a constant yes. rolling conversation between executives. And so obviously Kaepernick is going to have come up. Will it have come up in such a way that that will have been preserved and it'll has made its way to Kaepernick's people? Like that's the that's right. the question. Well, and is it I bet the... you I bet you that there's evidence of collusion somewhere. But will that evidence be accessible? All That's it really takes, question. Josh, is one sympathetic player personnel director whose owner told him outright, you're not signing this motherfucker, to forward an email or an email chain. But that wouldn't be collusion for an owner to make an individual decision. No, no, not no. To, to forward an email from another team executive who said, you know, Jerry and and Bob – we're talking about how we shouldn't sign Kaepernick or another general manager saying, yeah, I was talking to so-and-so from this franchise and, you know, they were saying no way and we agreed. I mean, there's not, it doesn't take much for them to bring the claim. Whether the claim will be successful or not is, is, is unpredictable. Well, look, everyone has said for – I don't know if it's years now, more than a year, that Donald Trump said the most unbelievable, like awful stuff on The Apprentice, right? And those outtakes are out there and they're going to get – the outtakes haven't gotten out. Now, that's like – there presumably like were a bunch of people there who heard it. Um, that hasn't come out now. Yeah, there are no NDAs though on forwarding an email from one general manager to another. This is a probably a much bigger – community. Um, it's one where embarrassing information that, you know, information that's another franchise or, or information that's embarrassing to the league has gotten out yep. many times before. There's a whole um, infrastructure around acquiring leaks. There are reporters, a bunch of them, whose entire job it is to suss out information like this and that are pretty good at that job. But it's not like only today is when we want to have this evidence of collusion. This would have been a goldmine for, you know, Jay Glazer, Adam Schefter for, you know, since March. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if the fact that it hasn't come out yet suggests that it won't come out. I think we're just, you know, bullshitting here. We have We're just guessing. We have no... Sure. Idea, uh, but, but I don't think I don't think we should minimize the possibility that the very high-powered people on Colin Kaepernick's side, and I don't just mean celebrity lawyer Mark Garagos, but <laughs> are you contractually obligated to call him celebrity lawyer? I believe Mark, I believe he is. I think he's contractually. It's in. It's in. That was an awesome yeah. prefix. Thank you. Um, but you know, Jeff Kessler, 
the lawyer who has represented leagues and players for decades now and is currently representing Ezekiel Elliott. Would it surprise you that he's been consulted on on a Kaepernick grievance filing? It wouldn't surprise me. He's representing Elliott on behalf of the National Football League Players Association. Um, An effort to decertify the CBA, if that were an ultimate goal, would certainly attract the likes of someone like Jeff Kessler and other labor heavyweights. Um, There are... There's a lot here that we don't know, not just because we haven't seen collusive emails, but because we don't know what kind of strategizing has gone on among the Players Association, its attorneys, Kaepernick's representatives, and people like Kessler. And we don't know what fortifications or defenses the NFL itself has legally tried to take in the last few months, anticipating, no doubt, that it would come to this. The question for me going forward is Kaepernick has been very quiet. It's been used against him in just the same way it would it would be or would have been if he was a lot more voluble. Um, it's been used to argue that he doesn't actually want to play because if he wanted to play, he would come out and tell us that he wanted to play. But <clears throat> what he wants to do now as far as like where he's taking this fight is the big open question he you know based on the interviews he's done he's talked about focusing on working out and wanting to get another shot to play in the league and also doing um social justice stuff and working with kids if he wanted to go after the league you know this would be the first step that you would take if you wanted to be a Kurt Flood or Andy Messersmith or any of these the other folks who've made— Or the baseball um, players union in the 80s. You know, people who've made that their mission or at least part of their mission. And so that, for me, will be the interesting thing to see here is whether this is like, you know, I'm kind of screwed, so what else, what other option do they leave me? Or if this is like— phase one in a very well thought out like attempt to take down um, owners and the league for what they've done to him and to try to forge some sort of new CBA or work really closely with the players who have come out and said Kaepernick is getting screwed and get included against if there's going to be some unity there and not just the unity and the message around um, the protest movement. Right. And I agree with that. And I think it sort of it takes it to a second level of protest um, that Colin Kaepernick becomes the either direct leader of or a, a sim- symbolic figurehead of um, this. This collective bargaining agreement has not been great for players. Um, it began in a, in a lockout. Um, don't forget that Players named Tom Brady and Peyton Manning were plaintiffs in a lawsuit against the NFL um, challenging that lockout. There has been widespread player dissatisfaction with Roger Goodell over player discipline and other issues. There's been more evidence of uh, since 2011 when the CBA was, uh, was completed of brain trauma among players. There is more frustration with owners because of what's happened with these protests. And there is this overlying awareness, as there always has been, that NFL contracts are still not fully guaranteed. 
and players firmly believe that owners have all the leverage. This becomes an opportunity to galvanize players, not just to protest against social ju- on social justice issues, but their own workplace conditions. Before we get to Jose Altuve, a heads up in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to speak with our soccer guest, Caitlin Murray, about the continued fallout from uh, the U.S. national team's more than 4,000-word uh, long disaster against Trinidad, uh, Sunil Galati, the head of the federation, sticking it out, Stefan displeased. Um, if you want to hear that conversation, you're displeased? Not necessarily. Stay tuned to hear more. If you want to hear that, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get a Slate tote bag and bonus segments on this and other Slate podcast every week. The URL to sign up is slate.com slash hangupplus. Also, we need an intern. If you're in D.C., if you're free on Mondays, want to do a little research for the show, hang out with Stefan Fatsis. And Josh Levine. Um, send us an email at hangup at slate.com. Also, producer Patrick Fort. You get to hang out with him, too. Is available for hangouts and uh, hockey refereeing tips. Um, email us at hangup at slate.com. We're looking for for somebody here in D.C. to help us out with the show. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Sunday night in Los Angeles, Justin Turner, he of the flowing mane of red hair and also the flowing mane of red beard, hit a walk-off three-run homer in the ninth inning to lead the Dodgers over the Cubs 4-1 to one in Game 2 of the National League Championship Series, putting the Dodgers up two games to none as the series moves to Chicago. In the American League, the Astros are up 2-0 on the Yankees, thanks to a mad dash from Jose Altuve, who scored from first base on a Carlos Correa double into the gap at the end of Game 2. The 27-year-old Altuve, who is hitting 565 in the playoffs and launched three home runs in Game 1 of the Division Series, is probably going to be the American League MVP, this despite being more than a foot shorter than the Yankees' Aaron Judge, who is 4-for-31 in the postseason, incidentally. Joining us now to discuss Houston's diminutive superstar is Evan Drellick, who is the Astros beat writer for the Houston Chronicle from 2013 to 2016, and who got to watch Altuve dismantle the Red Sox from his current perch at NBC Sports Boston. So, Evan, when you were covering the team, Altuve was not exactly the same player that we're seeing um, in these playoffs. He was a really good player for the first few years of his career, but more of a contact guy. He wasn't hitting as many home runs as he has um, over the last couple seasons. He wasn't showing the kind of patience at the plate either. Um, Do you have a sense of what happened and how he's transformed from a guy who was like an above average player, like a good cog on a winning team, to somebody who is probably going to win the MVP? The, the power spike is not something I have a, a great explanation for other than he simply progressed as a hitter. I, I do know that when he first started showing the signs of power, which is going back to 2015, that there was some concern that he would start trying to act like a power hitter. 
that he was falling a little bit in love with the long ball, which you can understand a short young player like himself uh, kind of having a newfound discovered talent and ability. Uh, it might be something he tries to do and gets away from makes him what makes him successful. You know, even as far back in the minors though, when it comes to plate discipline, they held him back an extra year and he, and it frustrated him in a ball uh, because they wanted him to imp- improve his plate discipline. And, you know, high batting averages are nice, but in today's baseball world, we do have a better appreciation for the ability to get on base without making contact with the ball. So the fact that he's been able to maintain a high average, but also add in the the power and uh, the walks, it it has taken him to a whole other level. And and he's a even better player than he was now. The last time I covered him full for a full season, which is when, when he won his first batting title in 2015. The thing about Altuve, of course, is just his size. I mean, people look at him and think it's not possible for someone that is five foot five to hit twenty plus home runs or to even make that kind of contact, um, or to play baseball, <laughs> or to play baseball in the major leagues. Yeah. Um, he's from Venezuela. Tell us his origin story, because the Astros were were outliers in having interest in Jose Altuve. Yeah, they were the, the only team pursuing him, and he signs for $15,000 of this 16-year-old kid. And the only thing that was really appealing about him back then were his wrists. It was this quick wrist bat-to-ball ability. So the same thing that has translated and made him so successful is what they saw back then. And you do wonder, though, in, in today's age, would a team still take a chance on him? I got, I got to believe yes, but th- this is certainly a product of, of more pure traditional scouting, which is not what the Astros have become known for in recent years. He was brought into their academy in Venezuela. The Astros were a pioneering team in that country. Teams these days don't have a presence there. The, the academies that used to exist have mostly been closed. And now teams bring in players from Venezuela into the Dominican Republic. But back then, they still had functional academies down there. And the guy that needed to see Altuve, someone named Al Padrique, who was actually a big league manager for the Diamondbacks at um, I believe on an interim basis, it wasn't for very long, but someone who had managed in the big leagues was the guy who needed to get into the academy and take a look at him. And so Altuve was kind of waiting there for a few days, and, and the rules permit you to do this. And they finally get him in there, and Altuve was willing to sign for free. He just wanted a chance. Uh, you know, he kind of comes from, I think, what you would describe as a middle class background. I don't think he was, that he was coming from, uh, you know, a family of, of no money, but certainly he wasn't coming from a wealthy family, but he just wanted an opportunity. And he ends up signing for $15,000. I think they ended up having a behind the scenes discussion of this kid. He, he doesn't want any money. What should we give him? So they just kind of settled on, on what is certainly a very small amount. And let's give him uh, next you know, to they, nothing. They sign him and, yeah, it's right. And, and, and he, look, you know, Kevin Euclid signed for $12,000. So he got more than Kevin Euclid, but uh, it was, it, it, it's a very different story than, than Carlos Correa. And uh, it, it took him time to prove people. He's, he's a traditional chip on the shoulder guy. You look at Dustin Bedroya, he's had to prove people wrong at every step of the way, although I don't think anybody doubts him now. So the thing about Altuve is that, you know, he has the home runs in his game. And we've talked before on this podcast about how baseball is just trending to like essentially a home runs or nothing sort of game. But he is, again, the outlier there. He plays baseball in a way that like if you grew up watching the game, 
in the early 80s or the 70s or if you grew up watching the game in the 19th century, as some of us did, he's like harkens back to, um, you know, the way that an all around player played baseball. He's a good fielder. He steals 30 bases. He, um, you know, can slap the ball through the hole. He, you know, can score on a double into the gap to win a playoff game. And he plays the game with a kind of joy that must make I, – I have not, um, you know, pulled the Houston Astros fan base, but I would have to imagine that he's every Astros fan's favorite player. Yeah, he's got to be up there. I mean, the thing about such a loaded team, uh, you know, Alex Bregman and George Springer are, are, are kind of similar in that, in that same hard-nosed type of way, but you're right. As we look around the game now and you see so many people – specializing their swings uh, for launch angle and, and going after low balls and uh, you know, more pitchers, everything is kind of being very catered to a very specific approach, right? Just, just uh, you know, playing the numbers and, and the safest bet on every pitch and every hit and, and the way you design your swing in the off season. And so Altuve is a throwback and, you know, watching him win that first batting title, it, it is just kind of this, you're in the press box, which in some way it's, it's, it's a better view and it's not a better view. But I think in terms of seeing the whole field and the usage of the whole field, uh, it, it, it can be a better eye-opening experience than watching on TV. And it was, it's, it's one of those few things. There are some gold glove players out there that I, that I would uh, you know, add to the conversation. But it's, it's a different, there are different levels of hitting 340, right? There are different ways to hit 340. And, and I think you're hitting the nail on the head with, the way he does go about it, it, it's, it harkens back to an older time when, you know, Pete Rose, whoever, but, you know, high contact was valued. And now it's, the emphasis is on um, power and, and contact when you can do the most damage. And not every L2 they hit is a screaming line drive, but he has this unreal ability to drop the ball in where people aren't and simply to make content. And in the uh, bottom of the ninth inning, that's exactly what he did against the Yankees. Aroldis Chapman is on the mound. First pitch is a hundred mile per hour fastball. Um, and he gets a base hit. That's what they needed at yeah. that time. And Tom Verducci related in his TikTok about that game, which is terrific on sportsillustrated.com, um, that he bats 438 against pitches that are 95 miles per hour and higher. <laughs> That's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 and, and it has, it has to be some sort of eyesight issue, but I'll, you know, I'll go back to those quick, to those quick wrists. Right. And, and, you know, we hear about people like Carlos Beltran and, and the ability to train for high speed. And the more you see it these days, I don't know about you guys, but, uh, it almost disappoints me that when I see 100 mile per hour fastballs, I'm not nearly as excited by them as I used to be. But but to be able to catch up to them and make that kind of contact with them, you know, I, 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 in my head I want to make some sort of argument that well, because he's small, there's less ground to cover, and maybe <laughs> there's some sort of, you know, maybe there's some sort of uh, physics argument that would actually back that up. But I don't I don't think you can do it. You know, it it, it is in in this. This is actually, it's a non sequitur, but I was thinking about it yesterday. In, in, in this age where we can measure absolutely everything, I think in some, to some degree we, we have taken away a tiny bit of the joy. And I'm not saying I, I wish we would go back. I'm not being a Luddite, any of that. I, you know, I, I, I believe in analytics, but I think 
you, you know, when, when you can look at each baseball game that is played as something of a coin flip, right? And we know this because of all the research. We've known this for years and years and years, but it's sometimes hard to get excited about individual performances. And I think there is with Altuve still this inexplicable quality. It does not make sense. And I don't know if you could present me uh, something that explains it, right? Like, why is he so good at that? I, I don't know if I can give you, or or even if the Astros can tell you, this is why this is he is this way. I'm looking at the website howmanyaltuves.com, which converts <laughs> um, distances and feet to the number of Jose Altuves, and I plugged in the distance yep. <clears throat> between Minute Maid Park in Houston and Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, which is about seven million five hundred twenty-nine thousand two hundred eighty feet, give or take a foot. And that is about a million four hundred thousand Jose Altuve's. Just put that in your back pocket. Trivia night. You know, just I, FYI. The the, the uh, Astros fans I found at, at points and they have a very, you know, I, I, I've covered the Red Sox and the Astros and my, uh, also the Dodgers, but really in the Twitter era, which where Twitter has kind of taken over. The Astros fan base is pretty darn impressive on Twitter and, and they'll get on you. And they hit a point and this is as far back as 2015, where, where they were kind of sick of hearing about the size issue. And, and they, they were, they, I don't know if it was a protectiveness or if they felt this is a group that cannot stand any jokes made with Houston, we have a problem. They, there's, there's nothing <laughs> that is hated more in the city outside of Dallas uh, than that joke. But I, I think they had kind of, they wanted people to appreciate Altuve beyond the hype. But um, Well, it, I like watching. It is, it I is watch very hard to do it. I watch LSU football and just when the game is, when it's like a national game, there are just like three facts that all of the announcers say, like, you know, Herman Johnson was the biggest baby born in the state of Louisiana. And you're like, all right, I've heard that 5,000 times now. So maybe it's just like, it, it felt repetitive or redundant at, at a certain point. I give them credit for retweeting no, just, every Houston, we have a problem tweet over the weekend. Yeah, that, uh, there, there wasn't a count doing that. It, it was fantastic. I, I think it's just that they, um, you know, they, they're protective and it, it also shows you how long he's been there, right? I mean, him and Dallas Keuchel, uh, those are the two that have actually lived through this terrible rebuilding process that's now paying off for the Astros. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, he's, he's someone who is very near and dear to Astros fans' hearts, I think, more so than some of the other stars on that team. So we've talked about Altuve's performance on the field. Let's listen to his performance off the field in this ad for Five Hour Energy. Jose Altuve is like a great player with a major energy upgrade. I could use a major energy upgrade. Then upgrade to Action Strength Power Energy. It's fast, powerful, just the right size, like me. But if you're here, how are you also out there? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. So, Evan, when I saw this ad, I think for the first time last year, I thought it was really great that a Spanish-speaking player had this national campaign. And as you can tell, his English is okay. It's not great. Um, but it's, like, so rare now to have a, a national advertising campaign based around a baseball player, first of all, and then a Spanish-speaking baseball player that actually, like, plays into what his attributes are on the field um, that gives us like a little bit of a sense of his personality. What can you tell us about El Tuve? Like what kind of guy he is, what kind of interview he is. So I, when I was working on the, an origin story, 
feature back in 20, 2014 and trying to talk to him. He told me, and I'm still, still 5% of me wonders if he was being truthful because it has come back up at certain points. Uh, he told me that, that maybe the, the Astros saw him on TV in Venezuela and that's how they discovered him. And I said, Oh, ha, ha, you're joking. That's, that's, that you're being sarcastic. Right. And, and I, I'm pretty, pretty sure he was. And that was the, the conclusion settled on as fact in the story, but he is really sarcastic and, and funny. And this is, it, it's usually off the camera. It's not when you have the recorder in front of him, right? when you're doing an interview with the guy, it's uh, it's a pretty straightforward discussion and then it's it, it, it's kind of amazing you know he'll say is that thing off or is that thing on and, and and it'll flip very quickly and he's so he's kind of a dick he doesn't want to get he doesn't want to give you anything no, you can use no, no. <laughs> yeah i guess so i guess so but he, but it's it's he's not he's not a jerk in interviews by any by any stretch of some people i think he's i think he's guarded but he doesn't you know, show his he, full he, personality he, correct and i think you see a little bit more of it in, in that five hour energy <laughs> ad. And, and, you know, one thing is that it just reminds me to talk about nutritional supplements. One thing that did help him a couple of years ago, uh, not necessarily five hour energy, but he did watch his weight more. He, he cut out certain foods and it's not that he was in any way fat, but I think it, it, he was trying to build strength. And that, that was leading into that 2015 season when he won his first batting title. Let's pivot for uh, for a couple questions to uh, Carlos Correa. A very different origin story, much more predictable and linear. He was uh, grew up in Puerto Rico, played at the Puerto Rico Baseball Academy. He was a number one draft pick. He was scouted heavily when he was a kid. Um, there was one detail in a in a piece in uh, that Tyler Kepner had in Monday's New York Times about the series that the Astros weren't impressed only with Correa's ability, but with his clear desire to be a major leaguer, that he asked his parents to enroll him in a bilingual school so that he could conduct interviews in English when he reached the major leagues. Um, These are very different kinds of people with very different kinds of baseball backgrounds, correct? Yes. And the, the, in, in terms of the contrast, you're absolutely right. You know, with Correa, he, the Astros went a bit out on a limb to make him a number one overall pick. Now, he's probably a top five, top seven pick no matter what. But part of the remarkable thing about drafting Correa where they did uh, is that he wasn't necessarily ordained to go number one. It's not like, even though he so badly wanted to be the first overall pick, that everybody in baseball thought he was that pick and the Astros took a bit of a gamble. They, they, they took him there. They were able to save some money on that draft pick and Correa was willing to take that lowered bonus because he so badly wanted to be number one. And that in turn allowed the, allowed the Astros to go out and get Lance McCullers in the same draft. So while he was always supposed to be this top five, top seven pick, uh, it, it, there was an element of risk because people looked at Correa and people still do look at Correa and say, you know, this guy might end up at third base. He's so huge. And, you know, it's not exactly Aaron Judge standing next to Jose Altuve, but it, but it is still comical when you, when you see those guys right next to each other, Correa and Altuve. Evan Drellick covered the Houston Astros for the Houston Chronicle, and he now uh, works for NBC Sports Boston, where he covers a team that lost to the Astros. Evan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg. 
This is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On Saturday in Orlando, the Portland Thorns won the National Women's Soccer League Championship 1-0 over the North Carolina Courage. On Sunday, they returned home. They were greeted by hundreds of fans at the airport. Later in the day, they were honored at halftime of the Major League Soccer game of the men's team in town, the Portland Timbers. And that night, they had their own rally in the stadium that the two teams share. It looked like a couple thousand Fans were there for that. Let's listen to a clip from uh, Merritt Paulson, the owner of the Thorns and the Timbers at that rally. I'm going to tell you something, and this is not hyperbole. And I want you to listen to this. You are not the best fans, just the best fans in the NWSL. You are not just the best fans in women's soccer. You are the most important fans in all of professional sports. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. You show the world how a top women's professional team can and should be supported. All right, hyperbole aside, he's right. The Thorns drew more than 17,000 fans per game this season. That's more than 29 men's big league sports teams proving that it is possible for a women's pro team to succeed off the field. Caitlin Murray wrote about the team's success for the New York Times last week. She was at the Thorns rally on Sunday night, and she joins us now. Hey, Caitlin. Hi. Thanks for having me. The uh, NWSL final was kind of a clunker, but I'm uh, looking right now at the front page of the Oregonian on Monday. There are two stories on the page. In the lower left corner is a story with the headline, Flu season's here. Time for a shot. (laughs) The rest of the page is a giant photo of players holding the trophy and the headline, Rose City Revelers. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, soccer is a big deal here to begin with anyway. And as you mentioned, the women's team sees great support. Uh, The Timbers sell out every game. They're at, I think as of last night, 123 straight sellouts. And that's really carried over to the women's team. People care about the team. They're excited about the team. And it's a big deal that they've won a championship. Part of the reason for that success, though, is a business blueprint that the the Timbers and Thorns have engineered. And it starts with the fact that the Timbers and the Thorns are owned by the same guy. And that the front office, as you write in this in the New York Times story, has devoted it seems sort of equal attention to both teams, to developing a fan base for both clubs, not just the men. Yeah. uh, For the women's team, uh, I think that there could be a tendency to kind of see it as a niche product. It's only for families. It's only for you know, little girls who play soccer, but they, you know, they have a staff of about 130 people and they, uh, when they had the Thorns uh, join their organization, they basically had everyone work kind of equally toward promoting both teams. Um, And, you know, we've seen the result of that. Uh, 
they're profitable. They've been profitable since their first season. And uh, they're so profitable that they're sharing uh, their profits with the rest of the league. Um, so that is a big part of the blueprint is having uh, an organization with resources. I think Portland also has a lot of things going for it. They only have an NBA team as the other, you know, big sports team there. Uh, the stadium is in a great location. I can walk to it from where I live. Um, and, you know, Portland has supported soccer for a long time. So there are other ingredients uh, beyond just the organization, um, but the organization helps a lot. I don't know if it's a fair analogy, but you see this in Oklahoma City, right, where um, the Thunder is the only team in town and they get like incredibly rabid support there. It seems like Portland is the right kind of market for this because a really top notch, whether it's MLS team or NWSL team is going to be like one of the best shows in town every night that they play. One of the like biggest entertainment spectacles. Um, There's not, as much sports or, um, you know, other stuff to compete with. Is there a sense in Portland that not only do we want to, like, go to this game because we love uh, soccer and we like watching this team play, but that this is, like, an important pillar of the community and that there's just a sort of, like, broad-based idea that we need to support the Thorns and support uh, the Timbers for that reason? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a community around these teams. And uh, one of the other big factors is their supporters culture. I mean, these people, they're not just fans. They uh, are involved when they're not at games. They're, you know, having meetings and creating large banners called TIFOs for the games. Um, They do a lot of events in the community. There is an idea of community around these teams. And soccer is part of the identity of Portland. I mean, the nickname for the city is Soccer City USA, and they take it pretty seriously. And there have go- been studies and reports that have tried to say Seattle is Soccer City USA, and people here in Portland do not take very kindly to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, that relationship with the sport goes back to the 1970s. I mean, they had professional teams. The college soccer scene was always pretty vibrant. The University of Portland mm-hmm. had a great team for, for many years. Um, so it is kind of a, a, a unique place. But as I mean, looking at it as a pure business play and a pure um, marketing play, the WNBA and the NBA tried to work together and still obviously does in many markets. But you've never seen this kind of culture evolve. Um, Major League Soccer hasn't had an across the board buy in with the NWSL. Um so when Merritt Paulson talks about creating this, this, that this should be the model for women's sports, I find it hard to disagree. It's economies of scale. It's creating a fan base. It's, it's, um, it's using the existing fan base for a, a men's team to attract new fans for a women's team. It seems to make a lot of sense, and it seems like it should be replicable. Yeah, I mean, we can look uh – Throughout the NWSL, the Orlando Pride are probably the closest thing at this point to replicating what the Portland Thorns have done. The Pride are affiliated with Orlando City and MLS. And Orlando City, uh, like the Timbers, they 
attract huge crowds. One of the biggest average attendances in the league. Um, they are able to share resources and it's another market where it's not a crowded sports market. Um, they have an NBA team and I think that's it. Um, and they, you know, their average attendance is about half of what the Thorns bring in, but it's still number two in the NWSL overall. And they've been profitable since they joined the league last year. So Orlando doesn't have the sort of rabid fan base, but I think they are, you know, working toward building something there. So if you look at the average attendance by team, and if you compare it to last year, it's actually hard to construct a story here that looks good for the NWSL. The Thorns average attendance in 2017 is 17,653, which is awesome. And that's like many standard deviations above any of the other teams. But like <laughs> Orlando's attendance was down 30% this year, actually. They were average 6,200 versus 9,000 in 2016. FC Kansas City's attendance was down 43%. They're at under 2,000 fans per game. There are other teams that are around 3,000, 3,000. 4,500. Another at Sky Blue FC is at 2,500. The average attendance per game this year is down 8.5%. Do you have a sense of what's going on there? Is it a bunch of different causes for different teams? Yeah, some of these you can explain. Like with Orlando City, for instance, in the first game they ever had last year, they set a new attendance record. It was like 23,000 people. So, of course, their average attendance went down when they didn't do the same thing this year. Um, FC Kansas City has had some issues with their ownership. The team moved, and uh, there are some problems there, you know, and I think there are questions about the long-term viability of that franchise. Um, so there are different things around the league. I think also in a bigger sense, you know, this is a down year in the uh, national team cycle that, you know, we're removed now a year from the Olympics, two years from the World Cup. And I think it would be expected maybe a little bit that in some of these markets that would have a detrimental effect. Um, you know, I think as we look to the 2019 World Cup in France, you would think and hope that you'll kind of see that bounce back up, which is what we saw after the last World Cup. So um, I think you can explain a lot of it, but the league is only five years old. So we still have a really small sample size, I think, to kind of figure out what's going on. Even, even though it's only five years old, this becomes part of the problem with women's sports, uh, professional women's sports generally, is that the sustainability has to come at some point and they have to find ways to create that sustainability. So in, there are so many different leagues and so many different sports that have existed for around this amount of time and there just hasn't been the ability or will or money to keep them afloat. And hopefully this one will be different. Yeah. And and the, the, the thing that I would look for, and I'm, I'm curious about, and maybe Caitlin, you know more about it, is in markets like Washington, where Josh and I are sitting right now, um, they're building a new stadium for DC United. The women's team uh, the spirit plays out in the suburbs in a little Maryland soccerplex. Maryland soccerplex, <laughs> yes, um, which is a small four thousand seat capacity, including people sitting on a hill alongside <laughs> the pitch, yep. which is a great environment. And they but almost you're sell not, it out. And it's grass. And it's, it's grass. grass at least. <laughs> yeah, and and it's fun to go to those games. But 
as a long-term viable business, I just don't see it surviving there. And that's ignoring that they've had ownership issues and 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 player issues. One over question the last about that because I one question about that because I haven't been actually. It's Stefan is like is is part of the issue there? Like it's a good atmosphere, but does it feel like less professional? Like you're not as much going to a professional sporting event just because they're like it's four thousand seat capacity, people sitting on a hill. I Does it like say, not feel like it's up to the standards that these women should expect? I, I think that that if there is an eight to fifteen to eighteen thousand or twenty thousand seat, seat brand new stadium in downtown Washington, that that's where this team should be playing. And frankly, the atmosphere of the Washington game, Caitlin, felt a lot better than the game I went to um earlier this year in Seattle, where the Seattle rain play in this miserable 70-year-old <laughs> concrete bunker. Yeah, screw Seattle. <laughs> it is character, but yes, that stadium's Ooh. really old. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a trade-off there, right? Because if the Washington Spirit go and play in D.C. United's new stadium, it might end up feeling you know, cavernous and huge if they continue to get the same size crowds. Um, but that's you the know, issue, just, right? It's DC United's new stadium. That's not what the vibe is in Portland. Right. And I think, I mean, in terms of sustainability, um, you know, two leagues have failed, but this league does have a different model. The national team players, their salaries are subsidized by U.S. soccer. Uh, U.S. soccer has founded this league and they support it in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that uh, that... Uh, helps uh, the bottom line a little bit. Uh, teams don't have to spend as much money to sign stars uh, like, you know, Mallory Pugh there in Washington. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, it's difficult for independent franchises. I mean, uh, a GM for one of these teams, you know, Washington Spirit or Boston Breakers, they're scouting talent and making high-level decisions. They're also helping write game day programs. Sure. There's just not a lot of resources there. So, uh, yeah, I think what I would like to see, you know, people discuss expansion a lot in the NWSL, and it has expanded. Um, but I think a better uh look going forward is relocating some of these franchises. The North Carolina Courage joined uh, this season – they had previously been the Western New York Flash, and the North Carolina Courage are affiliated with uh, uh, North Carolina FC, which is a uh, men's team uh, in a lower division league. So they, you know, they don't have the resources of an MLS team, but they still have shared resources, and I think that's a good model going forward. So I think maybe we could see some of these franchises end up moving, but um, that's tough to do. Uh, if owners don't want to do that. Sky Blue FC has had discussions with the New York Red Bulls, New York City FC, nothing has happened. And I don't know uh, if the league can force them to do something they don't want to do. So we'll see. And it seems like someone like Mayor Paulson should be and probably has been on the horn with owners of, of MLS teams and NWSL teams to try to explain mm -hmm. how they've made it work in Portland. Caitlin Murray writes about soccer for the New York Times and other places. You can follow her on Twitter. Caitlin, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Great. Thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. Judy. <laughs> 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now it is time for After Balls. Jose Altuve, Josh, short, right? He is short. Not the shortest major leaguer in history, though. Wee Willie Altuve. Wee Willie Altuve. That would be a good nickname for him. Um, Of course, the shortest player in Major League Baseball history is Eddie Goodell, the three-foot-seven-inch player that uh, Bill Veck brought to the plate for the St. Louis Browns in 1951. Uniform number? One-eighth. I'm throwing out Goodell. Goodell is an outlier. Statistical outlier. Fire Goodell. Fire Goodell. All the Goodells need to be fired. Out of there. There's a tie for second, apparently, at five foot three. Okay. Who do you got? Wee Willie Keeler was five foot four. Here's who we've got at five foot three. Mike McCormick, 1904. A terrible name. Wee Mike McCormick. Jess Cortazzo, 1923. Okay. One pinch hit appearance. Cortazzo the killer. Bob Emrick. 13 games for the Boston Braves, 1923. 1923, big year for 5'3 baseball players. Like it. Yeah, yeah, batted 0.83 and 24 at bats. Pompeo Antonio Davalillo, nicknamed Yo-Yo by teammates. 1953, one season. He had 293 and 58 at bats. Nicknamed the Lost City. His little brother, Vic Davalillo. Five foot seven was a longtime major leaguer. My favorite name among all of these men, five foot three inch, Stubby Magner. 13 games for the New York Yankees in 1911. Second baseman hit just 212 in 33 at bats. Keep in mind, listeners, that that was not actually an afterball. That was just an afterball prelude. Prelude. Giving you so much hot afterball content mm-hmm. this week. All right. So I assume we're doing Stubby Magners then? That is what we're doing. What is your stubby Magner, Mr. Fatsis? Well, in the aftermath of the United States' failure to qualify for the World Cup finals, I wanted to relive some happier times. 1930, for instance, that was the year that the U.S. recorded its best finish in a World Cup, third place behind hosts Uruguay and runner-up Argentina in the very first World Championship. The story of that team has been well told. Who can forget, for instance, the 2015 FIFA vanity feature film United Passions, starring Tim Roth, Sam Neill, and Gerard Depardieu, which earned $918 in this country, and which we did a synchronized play-by-play of on this program. The first World Cup will be held in Uruguay. Uruguay got the tournament, David Goldblatt writes, and the ball is round, a global history of soccer, because it was flush with cash from its wool, hide, and beef industries. It offered to pay for every team's travel expenses, and it built the 100,000-seat Centenario Stadium in Montevideo. None of the British home nations participated. There was no qualifying. The U.S. was one of 12 invited nations, plus the host who competed. Eight countries from North, Central, and South America, plus four from Europe. The U.S. team traveled 18 days on the SS Munargo. All but one of its 16 players were professionals. They played for teams with names like the Providence Goldbugs, New Bedford Whalers, Fall River Marksmen, Holly Carburetors, and the Ben Millers, who were sponsored by the Ben Miller Hat Company of St. Louis. Slogan, Ben Miller wants your head. 
six of the players were Englishmen living in the United States. The team didn't play soccer together until two days after they debarked in Germany. Ten days before the tournament, the Americans were drawn into a group with Paraguay and Belgium. They beat them both three to nothing to advance to the semifinals against Argentina. The U.S. team was dubbed by the local media the shot putters because the players were bigger than those on other teams. In an unbylined special cable to the New York Times, the paper reported from Montevideo before the semifinal that the U.S. team is the most likely winner of the title as a result of the performances so far. While the Americans had won easily, the favored Argentines and the Uruguayans faced serious obstacles to gain their first triumphs, one to nothing wins over France and Peru. The experts, the Times noted, had accorded the United States little chance in view of its showing at the last Olympic Games in Amsterdam when it was defeated by the Argentines 11 goals to zero. The rating of the United States combination, however, was quickly and fundamentally changed after the first game played by the North Americans on account of the excellent display of combination work by the team. The Americans, alas, were whomped by Argentina 6-1. to In the first half, the U.S. goalkeeper James Douglas injured an ankle and a defender, Ralph Tracy, broke a leg. The U.S. had to play with 10 because there were no subs then in international soccer. The Americans complained about the Belgian ref afterwards Billy Gonsalves said the game was murder. They crippled Douglas deliberately. They broke Tracy's leg. Uruguay wound up winning the tournament. Ha ha, Argentina, that's what you get for breaking Tracy's leg. The U.S. finished third because Yugoslavia bagged out of the third place match. The U.S. would play in the World Cup again in 1934 and 1950, and then not until 1990, and then all the way up to 2014. Who could forget those glory years? All of which is prelude, Josh, to my favorite aspect of the 1930 World Cup, the clothing. The Argentines came on the field for the U.S. match wearing their uniforms with sport jackets on top of them, sort of the short suit. And the goalkeepers for both teams wore newsboy caps during the games. Newsboy caps. It's a good look. Bring back the newsboy cap. Josh, what's your stubby magner? There is a Twitter account called Sports Paper. The handle is at sports paper info. Um, I follow it. It touts itself quite accurately as sports history as told through programs, photos, and other things. It is a good account. You should follow it. Um, So I came across just on my Twitter feed last week, one of their posts and Stefan, um, I'd like you to open this link now. um, And you can help me describe what we're looking at here. This is a cover of a program from the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, October 14th, 1961. This is the annual game, the big game between Texas and Oklahoma that we just had this past weekend. And the image (laughs) that we're looking at here is a cartoon that is extremely racist, number one. Um, It depicts an anthropomorphized Bevo, the Texas Longhorn mascot, the steer, Mm -hmm. grabbing onto the long hair of a Native American who is depicted as like red faced with a hook nose, like a like a classic offensive American Indian caricature. Can that, you think of any similar classically offensive? I Native can American actually. I can. Josh? That's a you know that's an exercise you can work out on your own time. Uh, fans listening at home. So Bevo the steer is grabbing the Indian's long hair. The Indian is saying, "Ugh." And Bevo is holding a knife 
that very helpfully has what written on it, Stefan? Scalping knife. Yes. I love when the cartoonist doesn't, uh, you know, make you do any work. So that uh, came across my Twitter feed. I was like, well, that's extremely offensive. But also, who did that? I want to know where this thing came from. It took me a little while to figure out the identity of the artist, but I'm glad I did. The guy's name is John Churchill Chase, and he was the author and illustrator of a book that is on the bookshelves of really like every New Orleanian. It's a history of the city of New Orleans and its streets, and it's called Frenchmen Desire Good Children and Other Streets of New Orleans. So like a pretty well-known New Orleans figure, and I had no idea that he was also doing college football programs. He was born in 1905, and he died in 1986. He had a really long career and an interesting one. He started out as an assistant cartoonist on the strip Gasoline Alley. He then moved on to a long stint as a newspaper editorial cartoonist in New Orleans. Later in his life, he became what is reportedly the first editorial cartoonist for a a local television station in the U.S. He worked for WDSU in New Orleans. But we are here to talk about his college football game programs, which were weird as hell. Um, According to the University of Texas website, did this really good retrospective on him that is now dead for some reason, but I'll put a link on our show page to the Internet Archive version. But their rundown is Chase's covers are now treasured keepsakes for his vision of Bevo as the canny trickster brought smiles to the fans at Phil Memorial Stadium in the 1950s and continue to amuse modern viewers who often remark that they remind them of the Roadrunner and Coyote cartoons. So, Stefan, I've selected a couple of classic Chase cartoons that we can look through now. Um, this next one is a, a cover of a Texas Cal game in Austin from 1959. Do you want to describe to the listeners what they're looking at here? Yeah, Bevo is sitting on a television camera, and he, with one of his horns, he is writing Texas Victory, where TV is uh, written on the camera. And then the Cal Bear, who is standing upright, and he's got an armband that says Golden Bears on it, and he's wearing what looked to be football pants. He is looking into the uh, lens of the television camera, but Bevo. Bevo the trickster. The trickster has hooked his other horn around the bear's neck. So Bevo is playing on the bear's vanity. And seems like unclear exactly what Bevo is planning to do with the hook around his, his neck. Would he possibly want to impale the bear well, it's on really, the camera lens? The hook is actually situated right at his temple. So just a little force there would probably kill the bear. Right. All right. Does the John Churchill Chase cartoon. Now, all we have is all we have for evidence is, you know, an image of a longhorn potentially impaling a bear and also trying to like very racistly scalp uh, a Native mm-hmm. American. What you know, could this possibly be a trend? All right, Stefan, open the next link. Okay. We've got um, Texas versus Washington State. Bevo is pouring a nice bowl of milk mm-hmm. for the Washington State Cougar. That but seems oh no, like a nice thing to do. But oh no, the uh, the milk is covering what looks to be a, an extremely uh, painful vice-like th- trap device. I think device. that's called a leg hold trap. <laughs> the Cougar is going to get murdered, essentially, is what we're seeing here. All right, let's go to the next one. Yeah. Um, it also says, welcome to Texas on there. 
Texas hospitality. All right, let's look at the next one. This is a Texas Baylor game. Baylor's mascot, of course, the bear. <laughs> what do you see here? This one, this one gets uh, a little baroque. All right, so Bevo, he's got his tongue out. He's licking his lips. He's holding a uh, barbecue uh, fork, tongs, whatever. On one horn, there's a uh, looks to be a cellar of pepper. And it's the pepper is being poured onto the Baylor bear who is sitting in a tub labeled barbecue on top of a fire. Wood fire, yes. Wood fire. Um, the bear, despite somehow being cajoled um, into this bath, which will bring him certain death, still has the moxie to hold a sign that says Baylor. And then here's my favorite touch. Affixed to the tub for reasons that I can't really discern is a sign that says, especially for dad's day. My guess would be that that was like dad's weekend at Texas, like parents weekend. So it's sort of a combined bear murder slash Father's Day experience. Mm -hmm. I like that. All right. Let's look at another program. And this he also did um, uh, the cartooning for Tulane. And so. This is one where they were playing uh, LSU. And this is going to sting, Josh. It is sting. And so you cannot accuse John Churchill Chase of not concocting elaborate murder scenarios. This is like a Rube Goldberg kind of cover. All right. So the, the Tulane Greeny little cartoon dude says, let's see if cats have nine lives. Now he is do- now the Greeny is doing the following things. And I'm not, I'm not making this up. He has a noose attached to the tiger's neck. He also has a baby cannon situated, looks like towards the tiger's genitals. He has a knife pointed at the tiger's neck. He is also feeding the tiger poison, which you can tell because there's a little pink skull and crossbones wafting away from it. And finally, there is an anvil that says LSU on it that's attached with like a chain to the tiger's ankles. Will this tiger die? I don't know. You're leaving out the fact that the tiger is poised at the end of a diving board I did over leave that the out. ocean <laughs> facing backwards. I did leave that out. So this was the LSU Tulane game for 1964. Tigers have won last eight. Did they win nine, Josh? LSU won that one, yeah, 13 to three. The tiger just was not murdered enough, I think is the was the issue there. Um, the last one is that uh, John Churchill Chase also did programs for the Dallas Texans. So he, he got into it in the pro game as well. This one, uh, do you want to you roll with this one, Stefan? Sure. Uh, the Texan is standing on a box <laughs> of uh, Texan ammo. It is marked Texan ammo. It is marked that way. I did not make that up. He's got a 10-gallon hat on. He's holding a uh, what can only be described as an oversized pistol that says Texas Discharger on it. And the... Uh, the opponent is the Chargers. The opponent is the Chargers. So, so that's clever. Discharging. The Charger is sitting on... Well, it's actually the Charger's kind of a half man, half horse. Right. Um, situation gotta, there. You got to kill it. You got to kill a half man, half horse. Yeah. We can't so have that around. Where are you going to put the muzzle of the gun, Josh? Right on the half man, half horse's half man, half horse nose. Yeah. The Charger is holding a football that says AFL Dallas opener. First game already murdering. So that is John Churchill Chase, sometimes racist, always incredibly strange and having 
murderous tendencies. Yeah, cartoon characters killing other cartoon characters. I mean, it was the era of you know you mentioned um, you mentioned the Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. Yeah, I mean that really was a thing in cartoons. It was okay to depict oh, murderous it's still, behavior. It's still okay. It'll itchy, itchy and scratchy. It'll never not be okay. Um, that is it for our program. I will make sure to put lots of links to these cartoons on our show page for you to enjoy. Uh, you can follow along. Our producer on the Hang Up and Listen program is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and to subscribe or just reach out, you can go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Before we go, I want to let you know about Pinna, which is a new podcasting service for kids from ages 4 to 12 and their parents. It's hard to find great kids' audio out there, but Pinna has hours of original stories, children's podcasts, and all-you-can-listen audiobooks all gathered in one easy-to-use app. Audio gets your kids off of screens and lets them use their imaginations. And Pinna is ad-free, it's guilt-free, and it's a great activity for car time, bath time, group time, bedtime, or any time. You can try it for free. Go to pinna.fm, that's P-I-N-N-A dot F-M slash listen right now, and you can start a free trial. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Baby, and thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.